So far, after a brief introduction, Jude quickly moves to the reason that he wrote the book, which is verse 3. He said, I started out to write an encouraging letter, but I felt urged upon to write to you, exhorting you, admonishing you, to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Then in verse 4, he gives marks of those apostates, false teachers. And then in verses 5, 6, and 7, he gives examples from biblical history of groups of people that have fallen away and fallen into error corporately. Now in verse 8, and verse 9, and verse 10, he's going to go on to give us more of a description and the results of following false teaching. If you take it to its end, what the result will be. And so we read, Likewise, also these dreamers, or as the old King Jimmy would say, filthy dreamers, defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. As you know, for every real item, there's a fake, there's a counterfeit. Because usually counterfeits don't cost as much and they look very much like it. If you go to New York City and you walk out on the streets of Manhattan, there's all sorts of guys out there with watches. The thing about these watches is they look really red hot. I mean, they look like the real, they have Rolexes for 15 bucks. And, uh, and they have Seikos, you know, for 10 bucks. And all of the name brands, of course, they're pirated, they're fake, but they look real in many respects. Of course, if you look really close, you can see the flaws, but it's for people who want to show something off without spending two, three thousand dollars. They just want a little fifteen dollar watch. I've got a Rolex. I remember as a boy, my mom would buy ice cream until she found that imitation ice cream was a little bit cheaper. Then after imitation ice cream, they had ice milk, which is cheaper than imitation ice cream. And then I was recently in the store and I saw imitation ice milk. I thought, how is that possible to imitate a fake already? Of course, people have made money on counterfeits for years. Counterfeit money has become, uh, it used to be a lot more a productive, um, uh, deceptive art. Less now because people can pick up on it. But nonetheless, for everything that is real, there is a counterfeit. Spiritually, that is also true. There is Jesus Christ. There is anti-Christ. There are true shepherds and there are false shepherds. There are sheep then there are wolves that run about in sheep's clothing. Counterfeits that look like sheep, that bah like sheep, that smell like sheep. But underneath, they are wolves pretending to be sheep because in sheep's clothing, the deception becomes far worse. There's a parallel passage to Jude we've already told you about. That's the book of Second Peter. Second Peter and Jude are very much alike in content. And Peter warns us, there were also false prophets among the people and there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. There's always been a conflict between God and the devil. It's been going on since the beginning of the ages. But 
The conflict has not always been head-on. That is, Satan does not directly go horn-to-horn with God. He'll go in the side door. He'll do it secretively. And Jude already warns us that these false teachers sneak in to the church. They will come to your door. They don't knock on your door and say, Hi, I am a neighborhood false prophet from the False Prophet Association, and I'd like to deceive you if you give me 15 minutes. Let's give me a crack at it see what I can do with it. No, they'll smile, carry a Bible. They'll dress the part. They'll use God words. Christianese, they've got it memorized. And so that when you hear it, and and here's the problem with many of God's good people, is that anything that smacks of God, has Jesus' name on it, is okay. And it's bought into. But there are several warnings, Jude being one of them, that fakes are in our midst, tares are among the wheat. And Paul even went on to stress this. No wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. The end will be what their actions deserve. One of the key problems, of course, is discernment. Being able to distinguish between what is true and what is false. But John says, do not believe every spirit, but test them. Test the spirits. Because many false prophets and false Christs have gone out into the world. And so we're to test them. We once did a series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And one of the gifts, and I think it's good to resurrect the whole idea tonight, a supernatural gift of the Spirit very much needed today is the gift of the discernment of spirits. The gift of the discernment of spirits. Or the discretion to distinguish between spirits. That is... To be able to tell what the source, when somebody speaks forth some divine revelation or some new idea into the church, to be able to detect at its source and its motivation that which is spoken. Um, It's still needed. It was needed in the early church. And the early church did not have a complete New Testament in its beginning form. And they needed the gift of the discernment of spirits. But even today we need it. Even though we have the Bible in its entirety, Because there are still false teachers. There are still false prophets. However, if you have this gift of discernment, I admire you and I pity you. I'll explain what I mean. I admire you because you are one of few. You are much needed. Please exercise the gift. Let it be known. Instruct the brethren. And I pity you because... People with discernment are often misunderstood because they are able to see that which is counterfeit while everybody is blind to it. They say, man, can't you see? This is fake. Oh, brother, how could you judge like that? And he'll be berated because God has given him a gift and he's able to see with spiritual insight even often before that teaching fully manifests itself and you're able to compare it with the scripture just at its root. Say, that something's wrong. The motivation is wrong. The spirit with which is given is wrong. It's tough to have that gift because the person who has it wonders why other people aren't able to see it. I wonder. I marvel. I shake my head every time in a meeting or 
if I ever get caught watching certain Christian television programs, why people will buy into nonsense such as, God just told me there are 25 people here tonight with $10,000 each who will give it to my ministry. Who are you? Don't hold back. There's some over here and some of you aren't obeying God and they put the guilt trip on to pretty soon the guy says, okay, I've got it in the bank. Maybe I should do it, but I'll have to mortgage my house. But okay, okay. And through the guilt and manipulation, the person is pushed into giving. And I look at that and go, can't they see that? Can't they see through that? And it's the same story in many of these meetings by many of these teachers and many of the same groups. Jay Adams wrote a terrific book about discernment. A Call to Discernment. A short, small paperback, worth reading if you can get it. And he gave an example. He said, while I was living in Georgia, I listened to a quote-unquote converted Roman Catholic priest for days in a row denouncing the doctrine of the Trinity as pagan. Denouncing the doctrine of the Trinity as being pagan in his program on a quote-unquote Christian radio station. On another occasion, while driving through Texas, I heard a preacher invite listeners to stay tuned to this program because at the end of the message, I will tell you how to obtain an autographed picture of Jesus Christ. I couldn't believe my ears. I was certain I had misunderstood. So I stayed tuned, and sure enough, at the end, he repeated his offer, telling us where to send for the autographed picture and encouraging us to include a gift for his ministry. We need discernment now. <laughs> Big time. For everything that is good, there are well-meaning false teachers. I mean, you don't have to want to be a false teacher to spew forth that which is false. I, don't, I think that many people who teach blatantly heretical teachings, many of them are unaware. They're just ignorant of the Scripture but need to be accountable publicly to the body of Christ for what they teach. And we need discernment. A great brother from Moody Press gave me this card, not because he's handing it out and believing it, but because he wanted to show me what goes around. It says, where faith leads, God follows. That's a nice cliche. It just happens to be very, very wrong. The idea behind this in the faith movement from which this comes is that your words are creative forces that speak reality into existence by the will of your own faith. And if you have enough faith, God must cooperate with you. So you place your faith in whatever, like Napoleon Hill used to teach, and he was an unbeliever, same principle. You place your faith in it, God will follow and give it to you. Where faith leads, God follows. Now, that's unbiblical. Truth is, faith is where God is. Faith goes where God goes. And true faith is in cooperation to what has been already revealed in the Scripture. There are certain things that when you pray, you can believe because Jesus said, for example, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So you can pray for the Holy Spirit. God promised to give it to the believer. God said if you ask him, he would give it to you. There are many things you are specifically told to ask for. If there's some sick among you, bring them to the elders of the church, anoint them with oil, pray for the sick. You can pray in faith in those instances. 
yet allowing for the sovereignty of God. But that's different from faith leading, God following. God, come on, let's go. My faith is out here doing its work. You've got to cooperate. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He's writing just because I don't think we're going to understand this text unless I back up just a little bit. Two heresies have sprung up into the early church. If you've been with us from the beginning, you know what they are. Gnosticism and antinomianism. You don't have to remember the words, but what they represent you should remember. Gnosticism flourished for the first four centuries of the early church. They had extra books besides the Bible. They had the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, the Apocryphon of John, the Wisdom of Jesus Christ, the Gospel of Philip, on and on and on. They said everything that is material is evil, everything that is spiritual is good. And because your body is evil, Jesus Christ could not have been a physical being. And so he must have sailed through walls, never used doors, left no footprints in the sand, just a phantom. Now, that kind of teaching will do one of two things, and it did. Either from that you will deny the body and you will become uh, a rigid asceticist. You'll kind of lock yourself away and deny the pleasures of life and wear goat skin all your life and live out in the woods and deny and buffet your flesh. Or... And this is what the Gnostics did. It led to antinomianism, which means the absence of any restraint. They thought, okay, if the body is evil, if my flesh is bad, it doesn't matter what I do with it. What matters is what I do with my spirit. Therefore, I can sin to the hilt with my flesh as long as my spirit is true to God. That's what they did. In fact, they went and said, God's grace is so wonderful that I can sin, 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 and all I do is magnify the fact that God gives undeservedly. So Gnosticism bred antinomianism, loose living, living any way you want to, saying, hey man, I'm a Christian, I can do what I want, because all I have to do is say, oh Jesus, forgive me, and go on my way. So I choose to do that sin, and on and on, without any kind of moral restraint. In verse 8, There are four points of identification of a false teacher, or you could say four results. just depends how you look at it. Uh, First of all, it speaks about them being filthy dreamers, as the King James says, or here it just says dreamers. It's the first mark. They're not tied to reality. It's an imagination or a dream, what they're into. Secondly, that leads to the defiling of the flesh, like Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the example he just used. Thirdly, they reject authority, like the example he used before that of the angels who did not keep their proper domain. Uh, And then finally, in verse 8, they speak evil of dignitaries, like the children of Israel who complained against Moses and Aaron and contended with the authority structure that God had placed over them in the wilderness. These are marks of false teachers and the marks of those who follow false teachings. First of all, dreamers, or as another translation says, those who cherish vain dreams. What that means is people, the Gnostics, claimed to receive spiritual revelations. God spoke to them, and they were in this initiated little club. Remember at the beginning in our introduction? 
They were in this little initiated club. They were higher on a spiritual plane than anybody else because God gave them the revelations. And if you want to be spiritual, you have to be in their club. Have you ever had somebody say, God spoke to me and told me, whatever. Now, be honest. You wondered sometimes at that, didn't you? Now, did God really speak to them? And moreover, how? What do you do? Do you go, McFly? I mean, how did, how did God speak to them? Now, that's a valid question. I do not deny that God communicates to his church. His voice is uttered forth all over the place, especially through his word. But when somebody says, God spoke to me, often, often, it is used as a manipulation. Because especially when you're in an argument, how can you argue with that? Well, you know, the Bible says, yeah, but God told me, you see. Well, no, that's wrong. You're arguing with God? You see, it places you in the position of being low on the totem pole, arguing with someone who had direct revelation from God, and it sort of ends the argument. Instead of saying, I'm really convinced that God is doing this in my life, telling me this, He's instructing me, and so on and so forth. It's like, no, God just spoke to me. Now, He might have. But we need discernment to see if you are just dreaming, and it's a little impression you had, or you ate pizza last night and had dreams all night and thought God spoke to you, or indeed God communicated to your heart in a valid way. It takes discernment. It is more spiritual to say God spoke. But you can't believe it all the time. I know that you have all received computer letters from people in different ministries, radio, television, evangelists. The thing is, they're mass-produced by the thousands, tens of thousands, sometimes more, and yet they sound very personal. Here's an example of one of them. Dear brother, so-and-so, the Lord showed me that there in your city, and you put in the city, depending on where that address is, the computer will do it, that you can feel his resurrection power like never before during this Easter season. As I was praying that God would meet all of the needs in your life, the Lord led me to anoint the enclosed Easter cloths, cross prayer cloth with oil and send it to you therein, fill in the blank of your city. Brother so-and-so, please peel the anointed cloth and wear it on your lapel or collar throughout the Easter season. I believe that you will feel the assurance of my prayers for you and that God will meet all of the needs in your life. God spoke to me that he will use this anointed Easter cross prayer cloth just like he used Paul's in Acts 19. Brother, search your heart and think of any prayer needs that you have in your life. Then after peeling off your cross prayer cloth from the enclosed golden prayer card, write them down in the name of Jesus and return them to me immediately so I will know how to pray. Brother, I believe God has put you and I together for a purpose. We are not independent of each other. From the first time you wrote to me, I knew that you were dependent on my prayers to touch God for you. And I am dependent on your prayers to support this ministry. I so grieve by that stuff. I do, frankly, sincerely doubt 
that God spoke to this person about all of those 10, 15, 30, 70,000 individuals in all of this city around, that he was waiting on the Lord one day and he got 18,000 various revelations specifically for those people that he said he specifically got. Yet God spoke to him and God showed him. And it's those kind of things that make the church look really bad. And we need discernment. Um, Again, I don't deny that God speaks. I've had very strong impressions from the Lord where I felt God is doing something, leading me, speaking, whatever you want to call it, God's there. But we can't confuse an inner voice or an impression with a dogmatic, thus saith the Lord, unless you are willing to stand in the place of the prophet of the Old Testament and perhaps be stoned if you're wrong. And that was the criterion in the Old Testament, as you remember. See, if I came to you and I said to you, you know, I had a spiritual experience. This is what it was that you didn't have. How does that make you feel? Lower. Inferior to me. And I can use it as a way to manipulate you and get anything I want to in the name of the Lord. Okay, a few words about experiences. Number one, don't automatically deny a person's experience. If somebody comes to you and says, this is what God did this in my life, don't automatically say, I don't believe it. Be open to it. There's a lot of people who automatically are closed to the Holy Spirit, down on every kind of manifestation. Don't. Secondly, however, if you feel God has done something in your life and you've just got to share it with everybody in the church, and people ask me from time to time, I need to have the pulpit. My response is, first, let us observe your life and how this new thing has changed your life. Let's see the fruit. If it has really radically affected your life, brought you closer to Jesus Christ, more humble, more loving, hey, we'll let you share it, man, especially if it's something new that nobody's ever heard of before. We need it. But let us first observe it in your life. Years ago in this church, uh, it was a fad that was sweeping the church. Thank God it's passing. It was this inner healing stuff. Regressing back into the past, into those areas where you couldn't remember a psychological technique where Jesus walks back to that event and you are there with Jesus and you even regress back into the womb in some cases. And Jesus is there in the womb with you, sometimes even prenatally, depending which books you read. Uh, Now, if you're Catholic, of course, you don't need to use Jesus. Some of my Catholic friends say Mary goes back with them. And uh, depending on what religious system, it's a technique that's been used across the board. But as I observe people saying, oh, this is the Lord, I watch their lives. And I noticed that they became very introverted, very self-centered, and very judgmental of other Christians, and I knew it wasn't from God because we observed it in their life. Uh, Thirdly, every true spiritual experience will lead to humility, not to puffing up. Not to, oh, I've had this experience you haven't had. I'm enlightened. I'm spirit-filled. You're not. It will always lead to an abasement. It always will. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord, said, woe is me. Job said, you know, I'm in dust and ashes before the Lord. The effect was not to exalt himself, but abase. Jeremiah was instructed to write these words down from the Lord. He was a true prophet. And God said, I have heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. These are dreamers. They're prophesying, thus says the Lord, but they're lies in my name. They say, I had a dream. I had a dream. 
How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy delusions of their own minds? They think the dreams they tell one another will make my people forget my name just as their fathers forgot my name through Baal worship. Let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream, but let the one who has my words speak it faithfully for what has straw to do with grain. See, he's comparing that which is lightweight and goes with the wind to that which is solid, the word of God. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? So the first mark is that they are dreamers. They're not living in reality of the scripture. They've got these revelations attached. You know, they, they're not accountable to the word of God. Word of God, they're dreamers. Uh, secondly, it says they defile the flesh. Now, I want to give you an alternate thought, perhaps. Since Sodom and Gomorrah was the previous example, as you see right there in verse 7. And it speaks about strange flesh, and we spoke about sexual deviation and homosexuality last week. It could be that what Jude is doing is using Sodom and Gomorrah as an example for those who have filthy dreaming imaginations. Their thoughts are filled with all sorts of sexual fantasies that eventually defile the flesh. In other words, the dreaming fantasies that they have will eventually come to fruition in a lifestyle of immorality. And that's always the case, isn't it? If you sow those seeds, you'll reap it later on. I don't care what the Supreme Court or some of these dumb psychologists say that pornography doesn't affect a person. It does. If you sow that kind of stuff in your system, it will come out. Ted Bundy should end that argument. He said it was directly related to my delving into pornography and having these fantasies that eventually the fantasies weren't enough, I had to play them out. And he went out and raped and murdered several women. And of course, he's not here today because of it. Those who scoff at the truth of the Bible in the last days, Peter said, are those who walk according to their own lusts. Now let me just refresh your memory in the book of Romans. We looked at it last week briefly. There's a downhill progression, digression, When a person leaves the knowledge of God like the Gnostics did, rejected the truth, eventually a filthy, immoral lifestyle will occur. There's no restraint. There's no morals. Why should I be accountable to God? I can live any way I want. And so let me refresh your memory. Paul said, Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies, one with another. The word in verse 8, defile, means to stain or to dye, to change color of a fabric. Spiritually, it means to soil or to pollute. The Gnostics polluted their bodies. They thought, I've got this revelation from God. All flesh is evil. All material is evil. Only that which is spirit is good. Therefore, I can do anything I want to with my flesh. So they would let the flesh go free, go into any desire that came to mind. They became filthy in their imagination. They became immoral in their lifestyle. It was played out. Do you remember something that Paul said in the book of Romans? 
he speaks about the evil of man, but then he takes it to a higher pinnacle. Just when you're feeling like, man, we're a bunch of wretches. We're a bunch of sinners. Paul said, where sin abounds, grace overflows. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Now, the question he gives in the next chapter is this. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, he's supposing that there's an imaginary counterpart. Somebody who says, no, wait a minute. Paul, you just said, when I sin, God's grace overflows. Is that right? That's right. Does that mean any sin, Paul? Any sin? Well, if that's the case, if when I sin, God pours out His grace, then I want to take a bath in God's grace. If my sin is the catalyst to trigger the grace of God, then it only makes sense. The more I sin, the more grace I get. Therefore, I continue in sin. The grace may abound. He says, God forbid. How can we who have died to the flesh by the death of Christ live any longer therein? And he speaks about us being slaves of Jesus Christ, slaves of God. You see, that's the warped philosophy of rationalization. Well, you know, if God gives grace, then I'll use it up. And I'll get more. He says, God forbid. A person apart from Christ, uh, let's be afraid, everybody can rationalize. But a non-believer is a master at it. I used to. When I was a kid. And I hung out with the wrong crowd. I could name all my friends and the stuff we did. I don't need to. But I remember after being bailed out of prison, out of jail, when I was 17, by my parents, for some things that I had done. I was an ornery, rebellious little snot. I would, I would still going to church during that time. And so I started thinking, okay, God really desires that human beings be happy. It only makes sense that He created us to have some kind of fulfillment. He wants us to be happy. Now, I get a lot of pleasure doing the things that got me in trouble and hanging out with the wrong crowd. So if what I just did brought me pleasure and God's will is for me to be happy, it must be God's will for me to continue doing those things. It's the same warped, satanic rationalization that Paul speaks about in Romans 6. We've died to sin. How can we live any longer therein? Lowell Fillmore said, Liberty unregulated by law degenerates into anarchy. So if a Christian says, I have liberty to do anything... If it's unregulated by the holy law of Scripture, it turns into anarchy. In other words, I do what is right in my own eyes, you see. I do whatever I want. And that's what the Gnostics eventually went into. Filthy imagination. They defile the flesh. Notice what's next on the list in verse 8. They reject authority. What kind of authority? Probably all authority, God's authority, church authority, government authority. Now, when you and I grew up, we grew up with a typical sort of rebelliousness. Actually, rebelliousness wouldn't be the right word. Rebellion. I just invented a new word. Um, I remember uh, it was vogue and in style in the 60s to reject authority. In fact, there was a bumper sticker and placards that people used to carry, question authority. So we all did. If somebody said something, we'd go, I don't know if I'm going to do that. Why? How come? And there reaches a point in every person's life, probably around adolescence, that that person starts thinking like that. Why? How come? Now, that's very natural. 
to reject authority, but it is not what God's order is all about. We're told in the book of Romans, everyone must submit himself to governing authorities. I hated that verse when I first read it. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. I've referred many times to you a book called The Day America Told the Truth, a poll taken by unbelievers, sold in secular bookstores, of what Americans feel. And one of the marks, they said, that will mark this generation more and more and more is rejecting any kind of organizational authority. As soon as a law is put down, we say, why? As soon as somebody says, do it, we say, no. He said, that will mark the coming culture more and more. In an excerpt from it, he said, Americans are making up their own laws. In effect, we're making our own moral codes. Only 13% of us believe in the Ten Commandments. 40% of us believe in five of the Ten Commandments. I wonder which ones. We choose which laws of God we believe in. There is absolutely no moral consensus in this country as there was in the 1950s, when all of our institutions commanded respect. Today, there is very little respect for the law of any kind. Now, as an example, he cites a woman lawyer in Washington, D.C., who said, to be perfectly honest, some laws seem to apply to me and some I disregard. Here's a lawyer. Interesting. Some laws apply, some I disregard. Some tenets of the church add up. Others are absurd or insulting. I don't need the Pope the press, or some lowly cop to tell me how to live my life. Now there's a pattern in verse 8. When you reject God's authority over your life, you're going to reject any kind of authority whatsoever. Any kind of authority. And often you find marriages where wives aren't in proper authority and husbands who aren't in authority uh, uh, loving their wives because the couple isn't submitting to God. And you see it played out in every area of their lives. Next on the list, and finally, is that they speak evil of dignitaries. They speak evil of dignitaries. Now, this could refer to the example he used a few verses up, if you want to look at the children of Israel. Um, Yes, verse 5. I want to remind you. Though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Remember, the children of Israel had a long history in thumbing their noses at Moses, Aaron, and the leadership when they were coming out of Egypt into the promised land. And every time Moses would say, the Lord just spoke. That's when God really spoke to Moses. His face shined to prove it. And he came down with Ten Commandments, but they kept lapsing into moral degradation. And they kept saying, who made you to be ruler over us? And when the two came back and gave the good report, they believed the ten who gave the bad report instead of Joshua and Caleb who gave the good. And they rebelled against the authority. And they said, let's stone the leaders. So it could be that they're referring to the fact that the Gnostics of the early church, and it's a warning for us, did not regard any church structure, did not submit under any spiritual authority, any pastor, any church, any eldership. They're just sort of loose cannons doing their own thing in the name of Jesus Christ, and it can lead to reckless living. He could be speaking of that. Um, Paul the Apostle was slandered many times. 
You read the New Testament and you see how people preached Christ out of envy and strife, supposing, Paul said, to add afflictions to my bonds, to my chains. And what they were trying to do is say that Paul was not an authority. Don't listen to him. Forget the fact that he says God has anointed his life. Forget all of the imprisonments. Forget all of the miracles. Forget all of the epistles. And wherever Paul went, he was followed by false teachers who tried to knock down his authority. They rejected authority. They spoke evil of dignitaries. In the book of Corinthians, he said concerning his enemies, For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily appearance is weak and his speech is contemptible. Now again, you know, it's, it's a natural, unfortunate byproduct of a society that rejects authority like ours. But you know, anytime somebody is in a position of authority, they are mocked. You know, about 50 years ago, if you would mock presidents like you do today, you'd be in serious trouble. But as soon as you step into any office of authority, you are mocked, you are challenged, they put out cartoons about you in every newspaper. It's a byproduct of our society, and it's a byproduct of a person who will eventually follow false teaching. He's a loose cannon. He rejects any kind of authority whatsoever. Or this also could mean rejecting God's authority. Denying Jesus Christ personally, the ultimate dignitary himself. And of course, we know that this day and age is marked, perhaps greater than any other age, by an assault on the person of Jesus Christ. By the press, by movies, and even by church leaders. Liberalism, which is the opposite of conservatism, I'm I'm talking spirit, I'm not talking Democrat-Republican now. Although there could be some interesting parallels, but... um, There is spiritual liberalism where people who are liberals deny the deity of Christ, deny the authority of Scripture, deny that this book has any real bearing on real life. And more and more, that group is rising in this country. A magazine called Red Book Magazine put out a report not too long ago, a couple years ago, and they surveyed seminarians. They wanted to find out what they're being taught and what they believe in. Now, these are the future ministers in the pulpits of America. And the Red Book survey came back and said that 56% of the seminarians, and they try to go across the board in the seminaries of this country, 56% reject the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, reject the idea that he was born miraculously of the Virgin Mary. 71% reject life after death. 54% reject bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He didn't really rise from the dead. And 98%, almost all of them, reject the fact that there will be a personal return of Jesus Christ to the earth. A leading minister in Washington, D.C. went on record as saying, in our denomination, what you call the faith of our fathers, he's speaking to fundamentalists like us, is approaching total extinction. Of course, a few of the older ministers still cling to the Bible. But among the younger men, the real leaders of our denomination today, I do not know of a single one who believes in Christ or any of the things that you classify as fundamentals. It's sad, but many denominations are going that route. Many organizations that once upheld Jesus Christ are going the way of no return. And history shows that organizations, movements, and denominations that leave the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Christ, never return. Never get out of it. Individuals do. Individuals say, wait a minute, that's bogus. I'm splitting, man. I'm getting to where it's real and right. 
but organizations never do. Case in point, the Wesleyan movement. When John Wesley spread through England, it was like warm fire incubating life. Now it's frozen and dead. The movement that once brought life and hope has gone the way and it seems like of no return. For ten years, the Greeks besieged a city in ancient history called Troy. I think you remember the story. They could not penetrate. They couldn't make a dent in the city. They scaffolded the city. They tried to pelt it with stones, open the gates, wouldn't work. They came up with a new plan. They decided to build a huge horse, huge wooden horse, put soldiers inside of it and wheel the thing up to the gate of the city and then pretended to leave, get in the boats, and they sailed off into the ocean. The people of Troy thought, great, they finally gave up. And I don't know what this horse is, but it's a novelty. And they were curious, so they brought it into the city gates, locked the gates, partied around it. And that night, the people, the men who were inside the Trojan horse escaped, opened the gates of the city from within. Those boats, under the cover of darkness, sailed back into the harbor, and they invaded the city. What an entire army could not do in 10 years, a few men did from within in a few hours. The old adage, if you can't beat them, join them, works. And so Satan's method has been to corrupt the church from the inside, to send false prophets secretly within the church. Beware of them. Everyone who comes holding this book is not necessarily a true believer. It doesn't mean you should always have the evil eye. But would to God that God would raise you up with the gift of the discernment of spirits, that you could sharply rebuke and reprove those who lead others astray for the sake of the body. I'd like to close by reading an article to you from 1977 when literally millions of people lined up at museums to see the King Tut exhibit. Remember that? Went around the world. They came to view the treasures from the tomb of King Tutankhamun of Egypt. A story appeared shortly after in the Chicago newspaper. Ali Hassan, the curator of the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, discovered that some of the jewels found in the tomb were not genuine, but they were counterfeit. They were nothing but glass. The question was raised how this fact could go undetected for so many years. Here was Ali Hassan's response. We were blinded by the gold, he said. One just assumes that real gold and real gems go hand in hand. This is a case where they don't. See, people just assume that where people say God's name and carry this book and smile and act the part that they've got to be genuine. The gold fools them, even though they may be glass and not real gems. And so we need to pray for discernment. <clears throat> we need to know the faith that we might contend earnestly for it because there are those who walk about who are dreamers. They have imaginations. They reject authority, however, in their imaginations. They're not accountable to any group. They're out on their own, loose cannons. They defile the flesh. They speak evil of dignitaries. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you'd enable us as a body to be in a loving way full of discernment. To love the truth 
as Jesus said, your word is truth. And he prayed that we would be sanctified by it. I echo his prayer. Lord, we pray that we would know the word of God, not to lord it over people, not to act more spiritual, but to become more humble and to serve one another with the truth. Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen the bonds in this particular fellowship. That there would be the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and love. Lord, thank you for all of the good reports that we heard during the time of testimonies tonight. How you're working in so many different areas. I thank you, Father, for the love and the devotion and the zeal of the people of this fellowship. Add to that, Father, a great measure of discernment. For we know that wherever there is Christ, there is Antichrist. Wherever there is that which is true, there is something false. Help us to open our eyes and see it. In Jesus' name, amen.